Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries and our must-read daily newsletter. It's Highways Voices time again and this is Paul Hutton talking to a human behaviour expert who will be taking centre stage at this year's JCT Traffic Signals Symposium. I hope they like what I have to say because what I'm undoubtedly doing is massively elevating the relative importance of signalling, signage and wayfinding and other forms of information over the people who are normally considered if you like, higher status than them in the world of kind of road building, widening and everything else. Rory Sutherland returns to Highways Voices to discuss transport for humans and delivering the right traveller experience. I promise a very entertaining and enlightening conversation to come here on Highways Voices. Highways Voices, in association with partner organisations Elkrig, Adept, the Transport Technology Forum and ITS UK. Rory in a moment, but first let's as always catch up with the new from the Highways News website. Now, Adrian's not around today, so I've picked out some stories for you that include the London Borough of Enfield seeking expressions of interest from suitably qualified providers to deliver highways and civil engineering works, including programmed projects and reactive maintenance. The contract's worth £50 million over five years, with the option of a further five companies have until the 15th of March to express their interest. Nearly every home county's council neighbouring London has announced a refusal to cooperate with the London Mayor on the introduction of a capital-wide ultra-low emission zone. The Telegraph reports that Buckinghamshire, Essex and Hertfordshire have now pledged to join Kent and Surrey in blocking the installation of any ULES cameras or signs warning drivers who are entering the new charging zone. The report adds that Slough, as part of Berkshire that directly borders London, has also raised concerns about ULES but has not yet decided whether it will block the signs. And more than 70% of bus passengers have said they've already used the bus more often since the £2 bus fare cap was introduced. A transport focus survey of more than 1,000 people also found 53% of respondents are aware of the new fare, with two-thirds of regular bus users aware of it, while 32% said they might use buses more but haven't yet already. You can read all about those, plus some new road building plans in Wales. Milton Keynes looking at a high-speed driverless network, the 250th Unoptic Specs Enforcement Scheme installation and the mystery of a fatal so-called driverless Tesla crash is solved. All of those on the Highways News website. Remember, you can find out about all our stories on highways-news.com where you can find links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. And, of course, you can sign up to our unique daily email into your inbox every lunchtime we really are the only place you need to go for everything you need to know swaco improves quality of life by making the travel experience safer quicker more convenient and environmentally sound from software as a service traffic management solutions to parking vms ev charging and road marking too find out how swaco can deliver more efficient and safer traffic management swaco the better way every day highways voices the podcast from highwaysnews.com highwaysnews.com our guest on highways voices today is rory sutherland vice chairman of the advertising agency ogilvy and therefore an expert in understanding what makes people tick he's going to be keynote 
keynote speaker at the JCT Traffic Signal Symposium in Nottingham in September. But why wait around until September to hear him when we can get an idea of what he'll be talking about now? He and fellow behavioural scientist Pete Dyson have written a book called Transport for Humans, looking at how we can make simple changes to perception that have big differences in transport delivery. They'll both be talking at the symposium and I started by asking Rory about the motivation. Pete is actually a human geographer by academic background. I'm a classicist, but we both spent the previous 10 years involved in behavioural science and behavioural economics. And if you want to get really fancy, I suppose you could argue it was kind of uh, psychophysics and the psychology of human perception. And it occurred to us that the transport industry was mostly missing a trick but in some cases significantly misdirecting effort by focusing on the quantitative aspects of transport those things that are easy to measure typically sort of si derived units like time and distance and so on and missing out on much easier low-hanging opportunities to improve the passenger experience and to change passenger behavior in general, simply using psychological means, whether that be information, persuasion, reframing, uh, whatever it may be. And actually, in many cases, we thought the effort was quite often misdirected because what humans care about may be very different to measure than what transport professionals tend to measure and use as proxies for the idea of a good service. If you want to kind of parallel in this, okay, if people say a room is too hot, there is a physical way of solving the problem, which involves air conditioning and reducing the temperature of the room. But there's also what you might call a mind hack solution, which is you put in a much cheaper dehumidifier and that will make the room feel cooler. Those of you who've been to America will know that quite often the weather forecast contains both a real temperature and a feels like temperature. And of course, what humans really care about is the feels like temperature. I'm a, the larger man. I basically don't go into London above roughly sort of 30 degrees or even less, okay, because I find it uninhabitable. But I can wander around Phoenix or Scottsdale, Arizona at 105 degrees fairly happily. And that's nothing to do with the temperatures, to do with the humidity. And in the same way, I would argue the Uber map was a very, very interesting psychological hack because what people hate about waiting is much more derived from the level of uncertainty than the duration of the wait. I remember that, Rory, from when they introduced the matrix signals on the tube and then, you know, if you knew you were going to wait six or seven minutes for the next circle You didn't line, really mind. You, no. you kind of at least accepted it and knew, whereas if every train that came in, you hoped it would be a circle line train. And as we know, there is a rule on the circle line that if you don't need the circle line, it will be the next train that mm. arrives. And if you do need the circle line, there will be three district or metropolitan lines in there first. That's a perfect example, which is that um, better information. Now, I think Transport for London have difficulty justifying passenger information at bus stops and at tube lines because the investment does not materially improve uh, journey quality. Quality as defined there involves some sort of physical world metric of speed, frequency, capacity, etc. Now, I think that's woefully mistaken because 
I'd go so far as to say you can obviously improve a journey by giving someone something entertaining to do while they're waiting. One interesting question I noticed from the Lisbon underground is, for whatever reason, they have coffee shops on the platforms where there's space. Now, that strikes me as quite an interesting idea, because if you do have a 10-minute wait and you have the option of buying some coffee, for a significant number of people, it probably makes them feel less that they're in limbo and gives them something entertaining and worthwhile to do. I flew home from a holiday last month and waiting for the bags to arrive. At Funny you say that. I would have loved the coffee there. I've been ranting because, of course, bear in mind that if you've been on a plane, you probably, unless you're in first class, you probably haven't had a proper coffee. Okay, and I've been weirdly ranting about the complete lack of retail opportunities between landing and collecting your luggage. And I, I mentioned this to British Airways. It's completely weird that no one takes the opportunity to sell anybody anything just as a kind of pastime activity while people are waiting for their bags to arrive. I mean, airports, you might argue, are an exercise at airside departures. Airports are an exercise in using retail or some form of retail therapy to kill wait time. I mean, I find it very interesting with the psychology of electric cars, which is that if you're charging your car outside, you don't mind if the food's a bit slow because you're already accomplishing something through the wait. Other things that are really interesting psychologically are one of the reasons I think these touchscreen displays are so popular in McDonald's, KFC, etc., is that we don't mind waiting for our drink to be prepared so much because we see that as contributing to the quality of the drink and at least someone's doing our bidding. Whereas waiting to give your order is really, really annoying. Yeah, I get what you mean about all this. And these are some really good examples. And actually, every time you say them, you just sit there and think, God, that's obvious. That that That's, you know, that's something that... Actually, why don't they do that? Why isn't this done this way? And, you know, there's a whole book load of it. How in the 18 months since you published the book has it gone down? Has anyone what? actually taken the blindest bit of notice of it? No, no, no. I mean, there have been some, you know, both books I've written, Alchemy, the earlier one, which dealt with this subject in general, and then Transport for Humans, which I co-authored with Pete Dyson. To be honest, I mean, he was the lead author on it. It lent quite heavily on work we'd done between us over the previous seven or eight years or so. We're both transport nerds. And it interests me because there may be a few obstacles, which is that the problem with creative psychological ideas is you can't quantify them. And so they may fall foul of, say, a procurement process. And they may also fall foul of the engineering mindset because the engineering mindset is used to having a single demonstrably right answer. And I absolutely freely admit that the upside of admitting psychological solutions is you can get magic. You can literally solve, well, I mean, the most extreme case I give of, of a psychological solution is probably the overground in London. Now, the overground existed 20 years ago, okay, 30 years ago, not quite all of it. I will admit that they doled up the stations, they improved the rolling stock, and they added a few miles of track. But the vast bulk of what is now the overground already existed. 
I once was based in Canary Wharf and we had a client in Richmond and being a rail nerd, I actually traveled up to Stratford and got the train from Stratford to uh, Richmond, which basically went through stations that nobody had ever heard of. And it was a bit like, I don't know if you know the film uh, with Spencer Tracy called Bad Day at Black Rock, which is, um, which is this rail station where nobody ever gets on and nobody ever gets off effectively. The stations were like that. It was tumbleweed running through them. Okay. Now, the main thing that was done there, okay, I totally acknowledge the fact that they made material improvements and jolly good too, okay, lighting, safety, quality of stations, etc. But the main thing that was accomplished there was actually adding that network to the London Underground map. The problem wasn't improving the line so much as making its function comprehensible to people. In the same way, by the way, I'm very conscious of smart motorways that I don't think I don't think they did a good job of explaining them to people or, or, or explaining the benefits because there's always going to be a problem with smart motorways because when they cause a problem that's salient when they solve a problem it's invisible nobody talks about the traffic jam they didn't experience because the motorway had been inexpensively widened so so passenger feedback or driver feedback on its own is not going to be a reliable measure of how good an idea this is because they'll go oh there was a car broken down on the lane and no, 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 no. okay right okay that's noticeable the fact that the last 17 times you drove between junction 5 and junction 6 of the m25 there wasn't a traffic jam at clackett lane nobody's going to talk about that because nobody notices non-events so it, it really, really interests me because, the, you know, if you think about the overground, I actually say this is a case where something like four billion pounds worth of usable infrastructure was created using ink, also did pixels as well. But that was really an informational act of value creation. In other words, you didn't change what existed. You changed people's facility to uh, make use of it. If you wanted to be really mischievous, you could use the same or similar techniques to drive people off overcrowded tube lines and onto less used tube lines. We all know the central lines are overused, the Victoria line is underused, and that's largely because of how they're presented on the map, by the way. The Victoria line, because it was added to the map last, goes in a kind of weird, circuitous kind of what is it? What, what's that transatlantic route called? The Great Circle or something? Yeah. Okay, but it appears to go in a curve, and that's just to fit it onto the map. The Victoria Line does not go in a curve. Okay, but most people look at it, and it's not very salient as a way of getting where you want to go. Whereas the Central Line, which more or less goes left to right in a straight line, people go, "I want the red one." Okay, <laughs> now you you know you could reshape the map or change colours or or saliency, and you could fundamentally change passenger journey habits to reduce overcrowding for example well you could take liverpool street to notting hill gate on the circle line and have air conditioning and wi-fi so in the summer I've, i thought exactly about that that getting people off the central line onto the circle line if you just flagged it as air conditioned route in hot weather uh, but all, i mean i did wonder and this is very mischievous and subconscious and, and probably unethical but i did wonder about using smell you know, what would happen if you just made the circle line smell nice in the central line? Would that actually reveal itself in terms of unconscious preferences? But but uh, I wasn't suggesting you made the central line smell anti-repellent. <laughs> it, <laughs> it often does anyway. It often does anyway. But, I mean, th there are all these things to which we react in terms of decision-making under uncertainty. 
I'm not suggesting, and occasionally people get angry at this because they're, you know, engineers, I understand it. You've spent 20 years of your life being really good at making metal things run smoothly. And this guy comes along going, you're wasting your time here. What you need is music on the trains. You know, okay, I get the fact that that can piss people off. But the best reaction I had to the book and to a previous book was from a majorly serious software coder in the States who simply interpreted it in exactly the way I'd wanted to be interpreted, which is we often forget we have a second toolkit at our disposal. It was in a Wall Street Journal kind of paragraph piece. Mm. And I thought that was a fantastic, fantastic response. In other words, before you define a problem in physical terms, you should consider defining it in psychological terms because the problem as psychologically defined may be a lot easier to solve than the problem as physically defined. And if you solve for the psychology, maybe the physics doesn't matter. The precise reason that psychology is non-linear and kind of a complex system full of butterfly effects and, uh, and so on is both what makes it frustrating, but what makes it potentially valuable. That we tend to assume that the scale of the effect is proportionate to the scale of the input, i.e. the scale of the expense. Now, in psychological solutions, that isn't true. You can change three words and move mountains. Rory Sutherland is our very entertaining guest on this week's Highways Voices, and we'll hear more from him after we've had the partner news. Highways Voices, with the latest news and events from our partner organisations, ITS UK, Elkrig, Adept, and the Transport Technology Forum. ADEPT has launched a series of 10 case studies looking at how local government is levelling up across the country. One of these case studies focuses on bus services in Milton Keynes and their introduction of a demand-responsive bus service, the first of its kind in the UK. The bus service MK Connect is fully integrated with the local bus system and uses innovative technology to direct passengers to the most appropriate route. If using the demand-responsive service, passengers are picked up when a vehicle is available and dropped off at or close to their chosen destination, sharing the journey with passengers heading the same way. The service links to one of the 12 missions outlined in the Leveling Up white paper that focuses on transport infrastructure as part of the drive to boost productivity, pay, jobs and living standards. To read the full case study, click on the link in the Highways Voices blurb or you can find it by going to adeptnet.org.uk. Now, the Transport Technology Forum is leading a new project aimed at getting more value from the UK's network of traffic signal controllers. This would, for the first time, set a standard way of accessing each controller's specific configuration, ensuring that every signal-controlled site can be uniquely identified and connecting with its specific operational data. The Digital Controller Interface specification aims to provide a national unique numeric identifier for road authorities, a Convention for uniquely numbering signalised junction, a JSON schema for describing the features and allowed turning movements, and another schema describing the signal controller configuration in terms of its phasing, staging, timings and other engineering parameters. Demonstrations at this year's Elkrig Innovation Festival will showcase some of the sector's best maintenance practices and future technology, with industry experts lined up to support the event. The Local Council Roads Innovation Group is working closely with the Transport Technology Forum on this year's event, with the TTF committing to take advantage of the private road network area at the venue, which will be used to carry out live demonstrations. Elkrig's Innovation Festival takes place on the 4th and 5th of July at Newark 
showground. And ITS UK is inviting members to participate in the Big ITS Conversation, a new virtual networking event for the intelligent transport industry. The Big ITS Conversation provides an innovative way to meet with public sector organisations for two hours of short informal conversations. The event's about networking and networking only, and there'll be no PowerPoint presentations or appointments needed. Taking place on the 4th of April 2023 from half past 10 to half past 12, the event will allow members to join a number of virtual tables hosted by local authorities, sub-national transport bodies and national transport authorities. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. Highwaysnews.com. Now let's return to my chat with Rory Sutherland, the vice chairman of Ogilvy. You're going to be talking at the JCT Traffic Signal Symposium to a room full of signals engineers, you know, working in local authorities or in consultancies. You're going to be talking to suppliers of clever kits on the side of the road. But in fact, what they're actually aiming to do isn't vastly different to what you mentioned about the overground, just reusing existing infrastructure in a more efficient way. Basically, I hope I hope they like what I have to say, because what I'm undoubtedly doing is massively elevating the relative importance of signaling, signage and wayfinding and other forms of information over the people who are normally considered if you like, higher status than them in the world of kind of road building, widening and everything else, that actually line painting is a noble thing. There's a wonderful case of a roundabout in, I think it's Palm Beach, Florida, you know, where they got some Brits in who actually understand roundabouts. And they said, there's nothing wrong with your roundabout, except you've just got to change the way you paint these lines. Effectively, the way you've painted the lines leading into the traffic circle are basically causing the accidents. What's fascinating about this, of course, is an awful lot of it is at the level of unconscious mental processing. I think all of us know of of roundabouts that are kind of wrong, okay? But very, very few of us, including me, okay, I'm not a roundabout expert. I, I know there's something wrong with the way that roundabout is designed, but by the fact that I always feel disquiet going around it. But I don't know what it is you need to do to put it right. My, you know, my brain can tell me instinctively, you know, there's something not quite right with the layout here, but it would take a really, really high level of, I think, deserve to be prized expertise to say, ah, it's because of the lead-in. You know, I mean, one of the interesting things that Satnav helps with, but we need to solve, is this business in London where you have no idea approaching a junction whether the lanes are turn right only, go straight on or turn right, only go straight on, only go left, go straight on or go left. Now, what often happens is one, those signals are only painted on the road. So you only get to see them when they're too late. And secondly, they're quite often covered by parked cars. Okay, so you only actually see them when the car in front of you drives off and you go, shit. (laughs) Now, sat navs could probably help with this by just I, I, I don't think sat navs currently do it very well but they could give far better kind of clues as to the uh, the actual individual lane layout it's wonderful in a city like phoenix i was in phoenix recently and of course when you have a city built for the car and it's only i mean only really significantly existed as a city after about 1950 they had so much space to play with in the middle of the desert that when you have a right turn or a left turn they just add a couple of extra lanes <laughs> 
months. Okay, yeah. we can't do that in London. And so what we have to do is we have to actually provide good information instead. And I think there are lots and lots of cases where I would propose a signage first approach to the problem to, to traffic problems. I think it would be great, the, Rory, if you actually hang around for other bits of um, the. Okay, well, I'll try and do that as well, well as I can. Because there was, you know, you talked about roundabouts, and there's a perfect example of a few years ago the presentation of Sheriff Hall roundabouts on the outskirts of Edinburgh, where you had exactly the problem you talked about, and they've used a simple LED road stud solution so that when traffic is approaching from the side, from one of the arms, the delineation is one way. And then those lights switch off and the delineation changes when the vehicles, when the lights change and allow the vehicles that are already on the roundabout, those lanes change. Huge number it's, it's of, a sort of um, fr- it's a, fr- it's a sort of French French solution, is that right? I think or French technology is it? So, uh, yeah, well, no, it's done. actually the, the, from Milton Keynes. There'll be one of the exhibitors. I can introduce you to them. They're called Clearview. Clearview. Oh, total respect. Okay, because now, just to be clear on this. Okay, the reason I think you should have an information first, behaviour first, infrastructure second approach is simply that generally changing behaviour is cheaper than changing infrastructure. But secondly, I would argue if you look at behavior, you don't rule out infrastructure. But if you look at infrastructure, you forget about behavior. And so I think there's an asymmetry there, which is that once you start talking about road widening, no one's giving the slightest thought to painting lines or creating traffic light buffers or whatever. Once you've entered that category of kind of space and place, Whereas if you start with the mind, you define the, and you start with the behavior, what is the desired behavior here? You actually start with what you what we call in advertising a media neutral brief. You know, it's not making any presumptions about, um, uh, you know, whether we're gonna use television or press or direct mail. It's just saying, okay, what do we need people to do? And then the secondary question is, what are the toolkits at our disposal to get them to do it? Which is also very interesting, given I mentioned local authorities. And at the end of the day, the bosses of local authorities care about votes and therefore care about getting the right message across. Have you got any advice on just actually being good at showing people what you've done, why you've done it and why it's good for them? It's funny you mentioned this because, of course, behavioural solutions are often felt but not noticed. That's because, you know, the improvement is kind of unconsciously processed. And you do have a fundamental problem in politics in general, which is we did an early experiment with uh, lawlessness in kind of high crime areas where we found that if you actually got local graffiti artists to paint art on the shutters, replacing grey shop shutters with something different, There was now, okay, correlation, not causation, all the usual caveats, but there was a significant and sustained reduction in crime in those areas because grey shop shutters seemed to be a kind of unconscious prompt uh, lawlessness. Now, it's much less fashionable for the local council to say we did that than it is to say we added 30 policemen. It's the problem of the NHS in a sense, which is that... uh, Someone once described the NHS a cliff with with no sign warning you about the cliff, but an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. It is always considered perhaps electorally better 
and more kind of vote worthy and praiseworthy to solve a problem with expensive infrastructure, which directly tackles the problem and solves it head on. Whereas I would argue that the best solution is often oblique. But oblique solutions don't signal so well, I really want to solve this problem. We tend to favor direct head on solutions we must build a bypass because it shows that we care about the problem and it's a form of costly signaling. Now, a really interesting question is, okay, what are other solutions to bypasses? If you say, okay, the problem with the town is there's too much traffic running through it, you may argue actually that there are completely other ways you could solve that problem. What are the other things you could do? And of course, it's interesting too, because you quite often nudging is a good thing in terms of traffic because you don't want everybody to do the different thing because then you just create the same problem somewhere else. Do you want everybody to use the bypass, in which case you may actually destroy local businesses in the town because no one's driving through to do any shopping? No, what you want is you want to go and look at it and go, if we could just get 20% of the people who don't want to stop in the town to take an alternate route, then actually that's good enough. And actually, we see this because COVID, as I whimsically remarked, COVID has to a degree gifted the UK with a world-class train and road network, not by building any new roads or by providing any more trains, actually slightly the opposite, but by simply jiggling around the time people tend to travel. So by reducing the number of peak time passengers significantly and of course we knew this because it was called half term or the school holidays when you had half term and the school holidays generally the traffic everywhere ran a hell of a lot better now that wasn't because everybody had gone on holiday it was because 15 percent of people had it's enough to get you below that threshold of kind of gridlock and so so quite often persuasion solutions are good precisely because they don't work on everybody you know they simply work on the people who are most persuadable which is when you think about it economically efficient it's this old question you know uh, the people who go oh i don't want to go through that town i'll take the bypass or i could do with shopping i'll go into town you want actually an intelligent balance of those two behaviors when you build a bypass what you don't want is is a bypass that's so dominant in terms of the road architecture that the town high street dies one thing i would have a go at is highways england need to be better at motivating dot matrix signage to someone who works in highways england saying something like a2 closed beyond b4792 okay which is the sort of sign they put up if you're an absolute road professional that is a meaningful bit of information uh, you know i travel that route probably 30 times a year i have no idea what it means i don't i'm not even that good if you say beyond junction seven because which is you know which is junction seven uh, there's a wonderful example I'll give you of motivating signage, okay, which is anything with a reason, any instruction or exhortation with a reason will be more potent than one without a reason. So if you say reduce speed congestion ahead, people reduce speed much more than if you just go reduce speed. The most extreme case I got was I was driving home at about one o'clock in the morning on the M25 and one of those dot matrix signs came up and it goes 50. And everybody just keeps on driving at 70. Okay. And then, then it says 40. And everybody slows down to about 65. And then it says 40 livestock on road, at which point everybody slows down to 30 miles an hour because they don't want to hit a cow. Undoubtedly, there's quite a lot of work to be done on making those signs motivating. I also think, by the way, 
we need a lot of complex systems thinking here. And one of the things I'd say in smart motorways is you should probably call it a target speed. So you should say, not say speed limit 50, you should say 40 to 50, 45 to 55, 55 to 60. I would make the target speed slightly higher in the outer lanes than in the inner lanes, because when you have all three lanes traveling at the same speed, no one can change lane and you create a kind of lateral gridlock. I'd also make it a target speed. The fundamental benefit of smart motorways is counterintuitive, which is it's very difficult to get people to understand that by driving slower, you could arrive sooner. Everybody knows, and you can make that argument, look, I'd rather just rumble along at a constant 50 to Heathrow from Junction 5, okay? I'd much rather rumble along at a constant 50 than have stop-go motoring, which is 70 for a bit and then stationary for a bit. Everybody understands that basic principle of keep it flowing. If you've done an ad campaign which says we're not telling you to slow down because we're arseholes, we're telling you to slow down because if you don't slow down, you're going to be stationary. It's like the 30 miles an hour is faster at evacuating a car park than 50 is because the gaps between the cars are lower. And actually, we probably need to teach people this stuff. We will talk more about it. Thursday, the 14th of September, you've, you and Pete have got the whole slot in the afternoon to present some of your ideas and then have a question and answer session with uh, the audience to uh, to move on to a debate. So there's a whole hour and a half session dedicated to Transport for Humans as part of the whole JCT Traffic Signal Symposium, which kicks off with the movie user group and then the evening social on the 13th, which is Wednesday, and then the symposium itself Thursday and Friday. <coughs> gala dinner on the thursday night rory sutherland always a pleasure to chat and we could frankly chat for hours um and we'll speak again soon absolute joy as ever thank you very much indeed don't miss the jct traffic signal symposium it really is an event highlight of the year get it in your diary for september now highways voices hearing from the people who matter in the transport technology industry so with no adrian's accolade this week because well we've got no adrian that'll do it for this week's highways voices with me paul hutton next week we'll be learning about a very innovative and inspirational way to recruit more staff using a pool of workers you might not have thought of i'll tell you more about that and you'll hear all about it next week highways voices join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry 